Welcome to the first episode of the Bureau 42 special series of Silver Screen Superman. 2013 marks the 75th anniversary of the first appearance of Superman in Action Comics number one. Through the course of this year, we're going to be releasing monthly podcasts that are going to go through the Silver Screen incarnations of Superman and exactly how they contributed to the Superman mythos, what they brought to it, how they differ from each other, as well as bringing some of the information to light about what was going on behind the scenes and how these series got made. So in this first podcast, we're going to be discussing the nine animated shorts produced by the Fleischer Studios, commissioned by Paramount, which were released between 1941 and 1942. In our second podcast, we'll go through the eight famous studios animated shorts. Then in March and April, we'll cover the two Kirk Allen series. In May, we'll deal with the George Reeves Superman vs. the Mole Man movie, which was a backdoor pilot to the Adventures of Superman series. Starting in June, we're going to be doing four months on the four Christopher Reeves Superman movies. Then in October, we'll cover Supergirl. In November, we will cover Superman Returns. And finally, in December, home video release date schedules permitting, we'll go through this year's Man of Steel, scheduled for release on June 14th, which is actually the same day we'll be discussing the first Christopher Reeve Superman. So now on to the Fleischer animated shorts. In 1938, Superman debuted in comics. He was not the first masked vigilante by any means, nor was he really the first super-powered character. We already had Doc Savage and other characters that were at least peak human performance, but he was the first one that really gripped audience attention and started moving forward. It's Superman that superheroes are named after, and not vice versa. Even beyond that, the Superman character helped change the comics medium. When he was first published, comic books were not considered enjoyable, or they were pretty much the bottom of the publication ladder. Most people who were getting into comic books were getting into them with the purpose of getting their comic strips into the daily newspapers. That's where the money was. Even if you read a lot of the early Superman strips, you can see that they are structured in terms of story, broken into three-panel strips so they could be chopped up and used as a daily newspaper strip. That was the goal of most creators. But Superman helped change that. He was the character where people would go to the comics because they wanted the stories faster than they can get them in daily newspapers. He was originally published by National Comics that quickly partnered with other companies to get these titles out. So one of the first licenses of Superman was to the Mutual Broadcasting System, which was a radio network, and that started a radio show in the 1940s. The first time Superman hit the silver screen was in 1941. This is a case where Paramount Studios, or Paramount Pictures, had bought the rights to make animated shorts based on Superman and to bring them to the screen. So these were similar to the Disney shorts of the time, or the Looney Tunes cartoons, that a lot of people are familiar with. Run times are in the 7 to 9 minute range, and they were not the main focus of the broadcast, but they would be shown beforehand. This happened especially in the early 1940s. During that time, World War II was already started in Europe. America joined World War II late in 1941, but resources were scarce, people were already stockpiling, and through the early 40s, there just weren't that many new movies coming out. So the studios needed to come up with different solutions. Animated shorts had been popular since the the 19-teens, the 1920s. They moved into movie serials. We'll go through those a little bit more starting in March. But Paramount had purchased the rights to this character. And this was different. This was not a Mickey Mouse. This was not Oswald the Lucky Rabbit. This was not a Bugs Bunny or an Elmer Fudd. This was a character who was fantastic character, not just 
cartoony and able to bounce back from any type of violence, this was the only fantastic element in his world. So Superman is typically surrounded, at least he was at the time, by normal everyday things. And you could have very scientifically advanced criminals, but it was still just great feats of science and engineering. It wasn't anything too out of the ordinary. It wasn't anything superhuman. In the comics, there was the ultra-humanite, but that was it. So they knew it needed a different style of animation. They needed a top-end studio for it. So they could have gone to Disney. They could have gone to Warner Brothers. Instead, they came to the Fleischer Studios. These were the studios that contrary to popular belief, actually invented synchronized sound for film. Steamboat Willie was the first truly popular synchronized sound film. That was the animated short produced by Disney. But Fleischer had been producing films with synchronized sound for several years before that. Their films with the synchronized sound were sing-alongs, where you'd follow the bouncing ball while the on-film soundtrack that was synchronized to the picture, just played the orchestral versions. The idea was to get the audience involved in the music. And music is a big part of everything that comes out of the Fleischer Studios. So the bouncing ball that we're familiar with for following lyrics in the sing-along was invented by Fleischer Studios for these cartoons. But at that time, the vast majority of films were silent films, which meant that each individual theater typically had an in-house orchestra that would play an accompaniment to the film. Sometimes they'd play the scores that were provided by the filmmakers as their recommendations. Sometimes they'd just do their own thing to try and capture the emotion of the film. So it was pretty erratic. But because the in-house orchestras were right there, the theaters that picked up the Fleischer cartoons with the synchronized sound typically just depended on the orchestra that they already had working there and had them play these popular tunes because they were deliberately picking popular tunes so that the audience would be comfortable with the sing-alongs. They also invented a process of animation called rotoscoping. And this process is still in use today. It allows for very realistic animations. What it is is filming a live-action actor who goes through the motions that the cartoon character is going to do. They would then project these images one frame at a time onto very large screens, almost life-size, and have their animators draw the animated character immediately on top of it, which made for a very progressive format of filmmaking. It also allowed them to color with very realistic shading and lines because they had a, a human model to wrap it over. Now, they weren't just tracing that character and drawing the actor. They were drawing their own characters, but they were doing it on top of an actor so that the motion would be smooth and fluid and so that the lighting effects would be accurate. Now, the Fleischer Studios had finished their first feature-length animated film called Gulliver's Travels. It starred Bud Collier as the voice of Gulliver. He was a pretty prominent radio personality in these days, and they were moving on to the next one. They had a boatload of projects when Paramount brought it to them. Now, one of the things that made the Fleischer Studios very unique, and still would to this day if they were still in operation, is that they always put the art first and the business second. The Fleischer Studios were run by Max and Dave Fleischer. Max was the president and the producer of all their products. He was the businessman behind the operation, and Dave did a lot of the directing. So this pair put together a lot of movies, and they had a pretty full slate. They had talent that they could trust to produce quality product. They had characters. This was the studio that was producing Betty Boop and Popeye and Gabby, who spun out of their Gulliver's Travels movie. They had a very full slate. Paramount came to them with Superman, and they knew this would be far beyond anything they'd done before. They had done rotoscoping to produce accurate animated images of characters. What they hadn't done is tried to populate a world with nothing but characters that looked human. In Gulliver's Travels, Gulliver looked human and realistic. Everybody else was more of the goofy, cartoony, off-model, so to speak, type of characters. This would be different. It would be 
extremely difficult to do Superman and do it well, and they knew it. They had a lot on their plate. They didn't necessarily want to bring on another project. The problem with not taking another project is that if you get a reputation for turning down work as a studio, people stop offering you work, and the Fleischers didn't want that either. So they decided, rather than decline the Superman job, or rather than do just a halfway job on it, they decided to price themselves out of the market. So when Paramount came to them and said, hey, can you put this Superman cartoon together for us, or this series together, the Fleischers turned around and said, we'll do it, but they asked for just a tremendous amount of money. At the time, Disney was paying about $25,000 per short to produce their animated shorts. They were the highest budgeted animated shorts on record. So they were basically paying about $3,000 a minute. The Fleischers asked Paramount Pictures for about $11,000 a minute to produce these shorts. So it's a dramatic increase in the cost. Much to their surprise, Paramount said yes. So now the Fleischers were kind of stuck. They had a project, it was an expensive project, it was an involved project, and they had a massive budget for it. So they did what the Fleischers tended to do. They put together art. And while a lot of companies would have taken that massive budget, say that the $100,000 per short that they were being offered, a lot of them would have just spent the $25,000 on the shorts and banked the rest. The Fleischers had a massive amount of money, so what did they do? They spent it on those cartoons exactly as they said they would. And we've got tremendous quality of cartoons. These first nine cartoons that they produced weren't just impressive from the animation standpoint, they were impressive in terms of what they did for Superman and the character. A lot of things that we've come to take for granted and a lot of things that are very well known about Superman started right here in these animated shorts. In the order of release, they are Superman, The Mechanical Monsters, Billion Dollar Limited, Arctic Giant, The Bulleteers, The Magnetic Telescope, Electric Earthquake, Volcano, and Terror on the Midway. That's the release order. Watch them carefully, you'll, well, at least I suspect that's not the production order. One of the things that they did when they were producing these cartoons is hire high-quality voice talent. For Superman, they cast Bud Collier, who they'd already cast as Gulliver in Gulliver's Travels. Now, Collier was a well-known radio personality. He went on to host several popular game shows. One of the ways that they found him was from Gulliver's Travels. When they found him for Gulliver's Travels, they were looking for a quality voice actor with a certain tone and resonance. They wanted a booming voice for Gulliver, so that when he was standing over Lilliput, his voice would echo and you'd believe he seemed like a giant. So they went to a local radio station, and Bud Collier did a sample as they put it out for a contest. And the winner of the contest would get the role of Gulliver. The contest ended, and they realized that sample that Bud Collier just knocked off as a demonstration was the best sample they'd heard out of all the contests, so they had cast him. They brought him in for Superman, and he would actually continue on to do the radio show. Similarly, the voices of Lois Lane and Perry White in these cartoons were also done by the same voice actors who played them on the radio series that ran from 1940 till 1951. So Jackson Beck was Perry White, and Joan Alexander was Lois Lane. Uh, Joan Alexander is probably better known to a lot of audiences as the voice of Della Street, Perry Mason's secretary in that radio program. The first Superman animated short release, simply called Superman, marked a lot of firsts for the character. It began with the origin, which to this point was mostly similar to the comic book origin. In the comics, we had the classic Krypton explodes. Jor-El knows that Krypton is going to explode, sends his son to Earth. Now, Jor-El didn't have a name yet, and when the baby landed on Earth, who was also not named Kal-El, he was simply baby Superman, when he landed on Earth, he was found by a passing motorist who dropped him off at a local orphanage, and he was raised there. So this Superman didn't have the Jonathan and Martha Kent. In fact, it would be about two decades before Jonathan and Martha Kent even got named. They were eventually assigned names in Adventure Comics run 
which told the stories of Superboy, or Superman as a child. But the Fleischers had a bit of a bind. Yes, they told that origin, but they didn't want to keep retelling the origin in every episode. In fact, you could see that the origin story wasn't really tied to the rest of the episode. And that initial, about 90-second segment, could have been attached to any episode of the Nine. But they put it there. So that's our first introduction. There's a few other things that we find for the first time in these cartoons. When they're describing this amazing stranger from the planet Krypton, we hear up in the sky, look, it's a bird, it's a plane, it's Superman. That carried over from the early appearances in the radio series. It wasn't a regular use on the series, but the dialogue appeared there first. It was also used here. Now, it may have been recorded for the shorts first. A lot of historians credit the shorts as the source of look up in the sky. And there's a few elements of Bud Collier's performance that make me suspect that a lot of these were recorded first, also because of the time it takes to produce the animated shorts, especially the way the Fleischers were doing them. This is also the first time we hear the phrase, faster than a speeding bullet, more powerful than a locomotive, able to leak tall buildings in a single bound. That started right here in the Fleischer shorts. It's also interesting that they say he was able to leap tall buildings because this was the first time we saw Superman in motion. And the Fleischers realized something. Having someone who just leaps over tall buildings and travels in leaps and bounds, no matter how big those leaps are, actually it looks surprisingly lame. So this was where they finally started making Superman fly. So even in this first cartoon, he's able to fly. Some of the later ones, he still just leaps. But this is the first time he can actually consciously defy gravity and move around freely in the air, which is something that was adopted by the comics not too long after, partly because the comic creators... Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster, wanted him to fly from the start, and the comic book company, National Comics, which would eventually merge with a couple other companies to become DC Comics, didn't feel that audiences would be prepared for a man who could fly. So it's the editorial end that said, no, he can't fly, he can just jump. The Fleischers did it, audiences loved it, they accepted it, so then the editorial staff said, go ahead. They were actually quite willing to adapt to what the audiences were expecting, which is partly how Lois and Clark came to work for Perry White at the Daily Planet in the comics. When Superman was originally created, he and Lois Lane worked for George Taylor as their editor at the Daily Star newspaper. It wasn't until the radio show came out and called their editor Perry White and the newspaper The Daily Planet that the comics adapted to match because the radio show was so popular. This cartoon series marries pretty well to the radio show, not just because they're using the same voice actors, but because they're using a lot of the same story. In here, their newspaper is definitely The Daily Planet, but in these first nine shorts, nobody ever refers to Perry White as Perry White. They just call him Chief. The door to his office simply says Editor. In these first nine shorts, we also see different types of villains for Superman to fight. In the first episode, it's a mad scientist. He's threatening the world, and he's got a destructo ray that can just destroy buildings. Of course, Superman is able to stand up to the ray and beat through it, but we see a lot of elements in here that we don't see in other areas. The movie serials and the other entertainment at the time didn't have a lot of strong female characters. Here, Lois fights to get the story on her own. She gets the story by flying a plane herself as a qualified pilot, and she's fighting back against this mad scientist the whole time. She's not your typical damsel in distress. Yes, she still needs Superman to save her because of the extreme dangerous situations she essentially puts herself in to do her job, but she's not one of these damsels in distress who just immediately reacts and says, oh, hero, please come save me. She's out there fighting for herself and just appreciates it when Superman pulls her out of a bind that she can't fix. We also see a lot of incredibly detailed characters and backgrounds. The characters themselves have shadows on them. As they turn in the light, the light plays over their clothing. Their clothing is wrinkled. 
There's even wardrobe changes. So unlike something like The Simpsons, where Bart Simpson wears the same outfit every episode for 25 straight years, these nine shorts will have different suits and different outfits for Lois and Clark on a fairly regular basis. They'll be attired in three or four different ways. Some of the characters will actually change clothes during the episode. One of the reasons a lot of animated series do the consistent clothing, that's why we have Bart with his red shirts and blue shorts, is because it's another way to identify the characters at a glance. The original concern was that the audiences wouldn't be able to tell characters apart if they didn't have that distinctive attire. The Fleischers didn't worry about that. There was so much detail in the faces and they were so unique. There's no question at all who's who. This also marks a couple of other firsts. This is the first time we hear the phrase, this looks like a job for Superman. And it's also the way Bud Collier delivers it. He used two different voices for Superman and Clark Kent through most of these cartoons. There's actually one cartoon, which is why I suspect it was made first. At the tail end of the magnetic telescope, we hear Clark Kent's voice, and it's the same voice as is used for Superman. In The Arctic Giant, we also hear distinct voices for Clark and for Superman, but Clark's voice is just Bud Collier's natural voice. In the other seven cartoons, there is a distinct voice that is not Bud Collier's for Clark, and a second distinct voice that is not Bud Collier's for Superman, which is why I suspect that it was actually the Magnetic Telescope filmed first, the Arctic Giant was filmed or recorded second, and that Bud Collier was playing with it and came up with something he was happy with after that point. When he did the radio series starting in 1940, he used those distinct voices all the way through, which again leads me to believe that these voices were actually recorded for the animated shorts before they went into production on the radio series. There's also a huge number of moving elements on the screen. Now, one of the things you can notice, especially watching things like the Warner Brothers cartoon of the Disney cartoons, a lot of the backgrounds are painted while the animated characters or the moving parts are drawn separately and they are not as distinctly colored. So you can get a lot of natural color gradients in the backgrounds, whereas the characters will be solid blue in this section and solid red in another section. And a lot of that is the way that the animation is made. It was much cheaper to paint the background and then draw the characters on what they call cells, which are transparent sheets they place on top of the background so they don't have to redraw the background every time. And it gives them a lot more detail. If you watch a lot of the old Roadrunner cartoons, you can actually see which rock Wiley Coyote is going to smack into, where that train is going to come through after it paints on it, because you didn't go at that color gradient. You get a color gradient surrounding a region, and there's one region in the middle of that rock that's that solid color. That's on the animated cell. The Fleischers took this way beyond what most people do. They not only painted some of the characters on the background, which was frowned upon because then you couldn't reuse that background in later shorts, but they would even paint characters on cells. So even in the opening shots, you'd see Superman standing there, hands on his hips, his cape flapping in the breeze, but Superman again is painted, and that cell is placed on top of the cell with the animated cape, which is traditionally animated, with a further layer of painting in the background. So they were painting on the foreground to get a much more majestic look and a much more detailed feel. They did this quite regularly through the course of the series. And the number of moving elements that they had on the screen was tremendous. Everything that moves requires another cell. Now you could animate them all on a single cell, but what they typically do is farm out different characters to animation specialists. So there'd be a lead animator on the Mad Scientist who would draw a lot of the keyframes for the Mad Scientist and then people called in-betweeners would fill in the cells that go in between these key points to make it go smooth so that the lead animators can plan it all out and then they farm it out to a bunch of others who can mimic their style and get these characters down to fill in the gaps. So there'd be one set of cells for the mad scientist, one set of cells for his pet vulture, 
one set of cells for Lois Lane, one set of cells for Superman, and they'd all be done in different layers. The more of these elements you have on screen at once, the more coordination you need with your different animation teams to make sure these characters are not overlapping, the more precisely you need to plan it in advance. So when the animators are animating, they need to know not just drawing this character on the cell, but drawing them on this part of the cell so it lines up here and the edge of the cell doesn't appear in the camera when they're photographing. The amount of moving parts as this mad scientist building is falling apart really shines. Either they had massive amounts of animation on each single cell, or they're using several layers of cells with several coordinated animated teams. Either way, it's a huge undertaking. The second cartoon was The Mechanical Monsters, and this one also has a few unique elements. A lot of horror movies at the time wouldn't show you the monsters. They'd be off screen, you'd see characters reacting to them, and that was because they just plain didn't have either the budget or the special effects technology to make the monsters look good. When you're animating, that's not really an issue. If the mechanical monsters starts off using a lot of shadows. These mechanical monsters are flying devices that are used by a super criminal. They're essentially remote controlled robots that can fly, they steal jewelry, fly around, we see their shadows first. And it's the shadows passing over the ground and people reacting to them that we get in the first hit. And this is another cartoon where we see a headstrong Lois, we see her going out of the way to get the story, and Superman has to save her from the danger that she's put herself in, even though she is trying to get herself out of it. But it's a super scientific criminal. None of these cartoons had any political elements to them. It was all either criminals or natural disasters. The third cartoon was similar. With the Billion Dollar Limited, there was a train carrying a billion dollars. Lois was on it to get the story. Clark saw her off, but a bunch of highly technologically advanced criminals go after her to steal a billion dollars in gold. And Superman is forced to intervene. Again, we get very detailed backgrounds, a lot of high-speed action. And this is part of where that budget was coming in. As I said, they were given a lot of money, and they spent that money. This train went through countryside and countryside and countryside. The sheer number of different backgrounds that were being used and were commissioned by painting is incredible. Every background you have and every different location you have ramps up the cost of your cartoon. And this was just packed with them. They also had moving parts that were going to be breaking apart and going to fall apart. Now, as I mentioned, watching Roadrunner cartoons, if you know what you're looking for, you can often see an element of rock or an element of the background that doesn't fit in properly, and you know what's going to stand out. You know it's something the character's going to be interacting with. It's going to be destroyed. The Fleischers were recognizing that as well, and they preemptively fixed it. If you watch these cartoons, you'll find that they were painting some of these elements on the cells, so they still had the flexibility to react with them, they still had the flexibility to have them destroyed or interact, but they didn't stick out like a sore thumb until that happened. So they could still surprise the audience and not give things away just by the way they're animated. Now the fourth cartoon was the Arctic Giant, and this has what appears to be another first, at least in terms of production cycle. One of the things that the movie Casablanca is credited with is developing the travel by arrow motif for the meme, the one that's used a lot in serials in the late 1940s, the one that was used in the Indiana Jones movies, where you see how the characters are moving by watching a little arrow moving around on a map. Now, Casablanca was released six weeks before the Arctic Giant, but looking at the production styles of both, I suspect the Arctic Giant was produced first, and this also has that cartoon arrow showing how characters are moving around. Even beyond that, this predates Godzilla a bit. 
The Arctic giant in question is a Tyrannosaurus rex that had been found frozen in ice at the Arctic and brought down to the Metropolis Museum through just a freak accident. Machinery is gummed up, the refrigeration systems fail, the creature thaws, and it comes loose and starts tearing up the town. And Superman has to come in and save them. There's no real evil here. It's basically just a creature on the loose. Nobody even tried to release it. It wasn't a distraction. Again, it says a lot about the villains that the Fleischers were setting up. So the fifth cartoon was the Bulleteers, which is, again, super scientific criminals. So the Bulleteers are criminals who've got a spacecraft that can basically fly like a bullet, and it goes through, smashes through buildings. In this cartoon, Superman is still leaping. He's not able to fly yet, but they're holding the city at ransom, and it's up to Superman to put their ship down. Again, he's able to do so, and again, the villains are not really supernatural. He is the only fantastic element in there. The sixth cartoon was the Magnetic Telescope, and this is one where, as I mentioned, I suspect it was produced first, because Bud Collier is using the same voice for Superman and Clark Kent, and this is the only case where he's done so. This is a perfect setup for the mad scientist idea. The Magnetic Telescope is a scientist who actually has created the telescope that can bring astronomical objects closer to Earth through magnetic attraction to get a better look at them and then repel them away. Because of a failing, a comet lands in Metropolis, starts breaking it up, people are demanding that the telescope be shut down, and the scientist is refusing. So he's not evil, he's just basically a little bit selfish and more focused on his work than anything else. And again, there's a tremendous attention to detail on the part of the Fleischers. So when he's in this facility, it is one of these large cavernous telescope facilities, so you have room to move and rotate a large telescope. And he's arguing with the local authorities, saying, no, he won't shut down. They've introduced an echo in the voices, the kind of thing most cartoons would ignore, they've got in there. This is also the first time we've seen the image of Superman holding up against massive electrocution. As part of the process the authorities start to destroy the machinery, and this causes problems, because now we have a massive comet that was being attracted to Earth. We don't have the equipment to repel it. So Superman puts himself into the circuit, and bridges that circuit has Lois control the equipment. So again, they save the day. Again, Lois has a strong female characterization, and she's just a very outspoken woman, much more liberated than we typically see. And this is also where the Fleischers make a shift. When Clark Kent changes into Superman, a lot of times we see it, it's in silhouette or it's in shadow. So he'll run around a corner and we see the shadow of Clark Kent changing into Superman and he comes out. So we don't see a lot of the transitioning phases. Now the seventh cartoon was the electric earthquake. This is one that, again, marks a lot of what this budget was going to. The title card is painted, as a lot of them are, but even then it's still animated. It starts to crumble and fall apart to give an indication of what's coming next. There's also another point in their progressive treatment of the characters. So we've seen that they've got a strong Lois. This is also one of the early cases of a Native North American who's a man of science. It's not mysticism. It's not the how kind of crap that was showing up in the 1950s westerns. That would have been just a pure embarrassment to anyone involved in it when they look at it today. Basically, there's a very articulate, very well-dressed villain who just believes Manhattan still belongs to his people. He demands an evacuation. They don't comply. So he uses his equipment to cause electric earthquakes and try and drive people off the island. Again, we see a lot of attention to detail. And some of these are details that even a big-budget recent movie like the Polar Express has messed up. One of the things that bugged me about the Polar Express is that when you see characters reflected in hubcaps or doorknobs or other curved surfaces, their reflections are plain, like it's being reflected in a flat mirror. Early on, we see Lois reflected 
on a cylindrical surface, and as she turns her head, her face distorts as it would, being reflected on a curved surface. And this is something that the animators were working through. It was also another case of multi-level animation. So this silvery surface had a few bright white stripes for bright reflections. And when we see Lois's reflection moving on the surface, her character moves behind these bright stripes. So these are layered on top of her face, painted on a cell that they can lay over the regular penciled cell. There's also a tremendous attention to detail in the coloring. When Superman comes swooping down to save them and he goes to this mad scientist facility on the bottom of the ocean or the bottom of the bay, anytime he's underwater, they darken his costume, they darken his cape, they darken his skin tone so it looks like you are seeing him underwater. When he's hit by rocks and boulders and they land on him, anytime he takes an impact to the chest during all the action sequences underwater, you see an escape of air from his mouth and a few more bubbles are released that flitter and wiggle back and forth as they float in a general upwards direction. So in the final short, done in the original Fleischer Studios was Terror on the Midway. This is another one that seems to predate a lot of the upcoming Superman mythos. Clark and Lois are at a circus. Lois is there on a story and they're basically complaining it's a slow news day. Now, we've got established that there's a monkey running around that's curious and playing with things. Lois scares them with the flash of her camera. This monkey runs around and it unlocks a cage of some kind and runs away in fright. And again, They've got the budget to show the monsters on screen. They recognize it can be scarier if you don't know what's coming yet. So we know the cage opens and something comes out. We don't know what it is. Not until it goes into the big top. We see the audience reacting. We see the other circus animals reacting. We see the performers reacting. We see reactions from pretty much everyone involved seeing the fear of what this is before we cut to gigantic the massive gorilla. And comic fans should keep in mind, this is a full 15 or 16 years before Giganto, the massive ape, appears in the comics. This one came first. Seems to be a bit inspired by King Kong. Now, as he's going through and tearing things up and breaking up the circus lights, we see a lot of different color filtering. So some scenes are shot in reds, some in greens, and they do this color filtering, the kind of thing that was done in Traffic by Steven Soderbergh. They're doing it in the early 1940s in these animated series, and they've filtered the scenes, so we're getting the strobe effects, and it adds a depth and a richness to the film that we don't typically see. And again, we see the way Superman handles these threats. He's not some bruiser. He's not like Batman in Dark Knight Returns where he's willing to cripple a guy as long as he survives in order to tell other people that they should be afraid of Batman. And what we see is, again, he's using minimum force. He's rounding up all the animals that have escaped, not just the ape, but the lions and the elephants, and returning them safely to their cages, getting them all under wraps. We've got cases where we have lighting painted onto the background, and the animated characters on top, as they move, the lighting matches all the way down through their attire. So this... This ninth cartoon is the last one that has the Fleischer's distinctive mark on it. Now, a lot of the same production team would continue with eight more cartoons, but unfortunately the Fleischer Studio story does not have a happy ending, and that's something we'll discuss more in next month's podcast as we go through the eight famous studios cartoons. What we have so far is the first moving interpretation of Superman. Some people were following along with the radio shows, some were reading the comics. A lot of people were first exposed to Superman in these animated shorts. These animated shorts would continue for most of the next year. They were coming out about once a month during the production cycle, and then Superman would not come out on the big screen again until 1948. So join us again next month when we talk about the eight famous studio shorts, and then we'll keep on going into the live action in March. I hope you continue to join us as we go through this series. I also hope you're able to follow along and watch these shorts and these movies as we do, and going along through the podcasts.
The nice thing about these podcasts is that these first 17 animated shorts are now part of the public domain. So they are readily available. They are available online for download. You can find them on YouTube. You can also find them on DVD and Blu-ray without much difficulty. Most of your big box stores that have the $5, the $7 sets of large numbers of cartoons will have the Superman shorts on them. There are also versions that are in much better condition have been cleaned up. I personally prepared for the podcast by watching the versions on the Ultimate Collector's Edition uh, 14 DVD Superman set, which I'll be watching a lot of in the next year. And in October of 2012, they released a Blu-ray upgrade to these shorts. As these podcasts are being recorded actually before that date, those versions aren't available for me to be watching. So not exactly sure how well the treatment has been doesn't look like a lot of these film elements are in great shape anymore. There's visible dust and scratches on even the remastered versions on the Ultimate Collector's Edition. At any rate, I'm your host, Blaine Dollar, and I hope you join us again next month as we discuss the eight famous studio shorts. Thank you.